Welcome to the Zen of Everything, a Zen take on life, love, laughter, and everything else. With Jundo Cohen, a real Zen master. That's me. And Kirk McElhern, that's me, a guy who knows a bit about Zen. Good evening, Jundo. How are you? One second, Kirk. I'm, 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 I'm do 108 prostrations every day. I'm up to 107. One second, 107, 108. I've done it. That's oh. a lot of work for an old man like you. Why do you do so many? Actually, uh, I can only get away with that on the podcast. I, I don't. Uh, I know I don't do. I should. I should. It would be good. Isn't for there your a precept about telling the truth? <laughs> I was a little joke. It was a little dormant joke. I know. Joke. I know. We have to consider that this is a performance. It was a good thing to do prostrations. It's good for the, it's good for the spirit. It's good for the uh, midsection. I do 27 sit-ups every day, which is an upside-down prostration. So, okay. And 27 is a divisor, I believe, of 108. Mm, yeah, okay. Right? Because all the... Three, six, nines, 27, anything like that. Yep, yep. Let me, ask me about 108. Yeah, tell me about 108. You know, I've been wondering, I mean, I've heard about 108 for a long time. The Tibetans do a thing where you have to do 108,000 prostrations. Um, but it was when the, the TV series Lost was on. In the first season, they found this guy in the bunker who had to press the button every 108 hours or something bad would happen. And that made me wonder why in Buddhism is 108 a big deal? Nobody knows why it's a big deal any more than they know what Lost was about. Yes, uh, fair point. The, the best that you can figure, this is a sacred number all through the region of India and surrounding societies that had to do with their great mathematicians who figured out that there was something special about this number. There's a whole bunch of special characters, such as, did you know that 1 to the power of 1 times 2 to the power of 2 times Three to the power of three is 108, which is also one times four times 27. Now, 108 divided in half, the result is 54, but five plus four is nine, and nine goes into 108. There's all these things about 108 and that they 54 is the number of cards in a deck of playing cards, if you count the jokers. Yes, but that has nothing to do with it. <laughs> but all through Buddhism, maybe it does, I don't know. But it all might. through Buddhism, you, ha you find, for example, the beads that uh, a lot of people use for chanting have in a mala. Uh, 108 beads. You'll find threes, things that come in threes and nine. We either do three bows uh, or nine bows. And because uh, there's a numerological, is that it? Numerological. Numerological, yeah. That, that's it. Uh, element to Buddhism, uh, centering around the number 108. That reminds me of another question. Um, many Buddhist traditions use a mala, which is a, um, a necklace of beads. It has 108 beads, and plus they call it a guru bead at the end. How come Soto right. Zen doesn't have that? I mean, Soto Zen does, but you don't use it. Not as much. There are actually uh, beads 
that are carried by a lot of uh, Soto people in Japan uh, when they're visiting the temple, but they're more, uh, how to say, symbolic, like a, a Christian would put a, a cross around the neck. Like Ornamental. That. Ornamental. Whereas in some traditions, like the Tibetan tradition, you can meditate um, reciting the mantra Om Mani Pebi and moving the bead each time you get to the end of the, the mantra. Yes, or the uh, Pure Land people uh, will uh, chant uh, to Amida uh, Buddha. And, uh, and uh, the uh, reason is that it's actually, uh, by the way, the same beads that travel down the Silk Road to the Catholics. You'll see the Catholics also carry prayer beads. There's something about the fingertips. Did you know that the fingertips have more nerve endings than any other part of the body? To roll beads on the fingers is mesmerizing. It's a beautiful Yeah, I, I know that that's true, but I've always heard that the feet have more nerve endings than anything else. Have you ever tried doing that with your toes? It's hard to roll beads with your feet. So, no, <laughs> that's why most people use their fingers. But uh, And the other, the big beads are, for example, counting. As you go around in a, in a circle, a cycle, when you get to the big bead, you know you've come to the end of the cycle. You don't have to keep counting in your mind. You just go, you recite your chant, and then move on to the next bead, the next bead, the next bead, and before you know it, you're, you've made a circle. And see, I always thought it was 108 because you, as you go around, if you're reciting a mantra or something, you'd kind of drift off a bit. So each time they give you eight extra ones, like mulligans. So each one is around 100. There's something about that, too. That's actually that people have <laughs> taught that, too. You know, there's a teaching for Seriously? everything in Buddhism. Yeah, 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 yeah. The 108, by the way, represents the 108 bono. Uh, no relation to share. This is yeah. the impurities, the imperfections, things like greed and uh, jealousy. There are 108 uh, such characteristics. And and New Year's here in Japan, you go to a temple and you do the Joyo no Kane, which is you ring the bell of the temple 108 times. Everybody gets to get, I got one ring, my kid got one ring, my wife got a ring. And it's nobody keeps count, but it's supposed to be for 108 times. And that's how you get away. If you have 110 people, two people have to sit out? It's like musical chairs? Yeah, nobody really keeps count. But the idea is that you start the new year getting rid of all, rid of all those imperfections and impurities. So these are sort of rituals that just get passed down over time. Um, and, right. and the one that I, I like, and maybe you can tell this story again. You mentioned it um, some episodes ago about why they tie the cat up in certain temples when they're meditating, when they're doing zazen. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to ask me why certain things exist in Zen or Buddhism, why do we do it this way? Why do we bow? I don't know. Nobody knows. It's lost in the fog of time. And the best story to tell how a lot of these customs start is the tie up the cat story, which goes like this. There was a temple way back when and a master and his monks and they were meditating and there was a cat. And every time they started to meditate, the cat would come in and jump on the monks and cause a little ruckus. So the master said, tie up the cat while we're sitting. So they tied up the cat and then they could sit. And this became a daily practice. When it came time to s sit, they tied up the cat. And soon the master died and the generations passed and nobody could quite remember why they were tying up the cat. So one day the cat died 
And they thought, oh, well, we can't meditate without the cat. So they got a new cat and tied it up. That's how rituals start. <laughs> so it's fair to say that rituals have a certain symbolic value. But as you're pointing out, sometimes that value is lost, that we could be performing rituals for reasons that are totally opposite um, what originally engendered a ritual. Well, rituals were, I'm not an anthropologist, uh, but my understanding is rituals were a way to commune with nature, get the gods or the spirits to kind of grant you favor, bend your way. Even in Buddhism, most rituals traditionally had a magic element. People did rituals in order to manipulate the universe. And I got to tell you, that's not the kind of Buddhism I practice for myself. And I'm kind of a down-to-earth guy. So I had to find a new meaning why to do rituals if I don't really believe that by chanting this, I'm actually causing the rain god to cause it to make rain. I don't believe that. So why, why are we doing rituals? I have still found tremendous, tremendous richness and value in many, many rituals, even without the magic element. And people come to me all the time. Some of them say, oh, I love rituals. Rituals are great. But other people come and say, no, I, I can't stand the rituals. I'm just here. Let's do Zazen. And I tell them, first off, Zazen is a ritual. We'll talk about that in a second. But the other thing is there's a tremendous power in rituals, even if you don't believe in them as hocus pocus. It seems to me that ritual serves a couple of purposes, and one of them is identifying people as being part of an in-group, right? If you do sure, the rituals sure. the same way as other people in the group, you're learning certain actions so you can be seen as someone in the same group of other people. Um, no for doubt. example, in Soto Zen, uh, people sit staring at a wall. Uh, in Rinzai Zen, they sit the other way with their backs to the wall. And if you put 10 random Zen people in a room, you'll know who's Soto and who's Rinzai. Not that there's just right. the two schools, but still, that'll be an important um, way of dividing them. Maybe the way, isn't there certain things about the way the robe is worn that different Zen sects wear it differently? Yes, yes, yes. It's all like my college fraternity. We had a secret handshake <laughs> that made us, we were the Delta Sigs. We were di different from the Sigma Fives down the, because we had our little thing. It's exactly the same. It's a, it's a, it's a club activity, but it gets a little silly. In Soto Zen, I, you have Zen in Japan. And then you have Rinzai and Soto. But within Soto, the big split is between Eheiji Temple and Sojiji Temple. And they had a, a rivalry through the centuries that came down to things like they won't tie their robes the same way. There's an Eheiji tie and a Sojiji tie. And one time I went to Eheiji and I made the mistake of doing a Sojiji tie. <laughs> they promptly ran over and they untied my robe and retied it correctly. <laughs> Eheiji is the uh, monastery where Dogen was, Dogen. and the the other right. one is is which? Not not Dogen again from Lost. Dogen, right. the founder the Dogen, the of guy. Soto Zen. Yes, right. And the other one, who was who was the star of the other one? Kazan, Kazan. Right. Uh, okay. Yeah, Doza, uh, Kazan was the, the fellow who spread Soto Shu throughout Japan, turning it into the largest. One of the large, I think it's the largest, it is the largest Zen sect, and it's one of the largest Buddhist sects. But he did it not through Zazen, he did it through rituals. 
He ah, went to little towns. He went to little towns and he said, look, we're going to come in here and take over your temple. And we got all these great rituals that will help your crops grow, help the rain fall when you need. There's that spirit that uh, is possessing your mother-in-law. We'll cure her. We'll uh, uh, do all these. And it was tremendously successful. Dogen was the Mr. Zazen and a little bit intellectual type. Kazan was the popularizer through rituals. Which essentially grafted on to the Shinto tradition, right? Oh, yeah. Shinto and, and, and uh, Buddhism uh, have been all mixed together. And, and even if you go to a Zen temple today, a lot of their rituals are actually for the, what you would call the, the nativist spirits or the Shinto god. If I went to a, a Zen temple uh, here, and uh, I believe it's uh, every few days, they do a ceremony to the earth god to keep the earth god happy, which is kind of smart in an earthquake country. That's a good thing to do. Fair point. And, you know, that actually is one of the reasons I like rituals. The reason I like rituals is I don't like rituals. The going to bow to the earth god. Okay, this sounds like a koan here. The reason you like rituals is that you don't like rituals. Yeah, but think of it. The uh, reason for ritual is because you put your personal choice aside, which is a big part of Zen. We put our likes and dislikes down. So sometimes I go to the monastery and I join in their routine because it's not my personal preference. Mm. When you're in a monastery, you know, here's another thing about the rituals. Can I tell you another thing about the rituals? Yeah. Why don't you tell me another thing about the rituals? People think that Zen folks are big iconoclasts. You know, we're free. We don't believe it. We do whatever we want, man. We're... They were the first hippies. Not true. Not true at all. Life in a Zen monastery traditionally was rigid. I once taught at a maximum security prison in Florida, and I I told the inmates, I said, your life here in the prison, apart from the violence, of course, is not unlike the daily structured, inside the walls lifestyle of a Zen monk, which is ritual in the morning, ritual in the afternoon, Ritual at night, and it doesn't change much from day to day. So the Zen iconoclasts, you know, what the big thing they do to show how wild they are, they give a shout in a ceremony, or they turn left where they were supposed to turn right to to make a statement. (laughs) They were not, uh, how to say, free at all. But the point was, in being bound, in pouring yourself into these routines that you don't want to do, You lose your personal preferences, you lose your ego, and you let yourself flow with what's happening, flow with the universe. That's the power of a ritual. But isn't the risk of that, that you become like everyone else and lose a bit of your free will? Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay. Uh, The the point, I think, at at, at a certain... After you've done a while, you hopefully get your ego back. Yes, you can. You but if can you're in a monastery into... all the time, like the Zen monks were back in the Middle Ages, um, then you really don't have much of a chance to get your ego back, do you? Or is that part of the process too? No, talk about my college fraternity. The the once you're <laughs> in, man, you were in for life. Uh, at least in those days. But uh, you know, here's the thing. My my sister happens to be a classical ballet dancer. 
She's uh, bless her. She's she's 80 years old and still teaching ballet. I, I, she's great. So she we talked about this one time, and she said she finds finds the same power in ballet that you do in many rituals, where you learn the choreography, then it's in the body memory, then kind of the brain shuts off, and the body just does this day after day, same Swan Lake, without your needing to think about it, and you find a center and a clarity. She, I think she's describing a kind of samadhi that she is in when she is truly enveloped in, in a dance on stage. That's the same thing as a Buddhist ritual. Yeah, I'm. I'm not sure I'd agree in terms of ritual. It is a flow state, and and as someone who's played music right. for a long time, I know that you get to a point where the music plays itself. Um, it's not quite the same as ritual, though, because a ritual is something that has to be done often as a prelude or as a part of an activity. I mean, rituals aren't self-contained, right? Um, you don't just go count to 108 when you're walking down the street. I mean, you might if you really want to, but rituals are part of a ceremony, part of certain actions. Uh, maybe before you do zazen, you bow and do gasho. Um, but well, my 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 you don't my sister doesn't you know do twirls in the grocery either. She also does her ballet at a set. Yeah, but time. that's a performance. That's a performance. That's a bit of a different thing because she won't do the same ritual in every performance, right? Once the swan wake is over and she's doing something else, it's different performances. Well, the monks learn a variety of rituals when they're training in the large monasteries in Japan. And they're really variations on the same themes again and again. You give a bow, you light the incense, you ring the bell, you ring the bell again, you light some more incense like that. Uh, there is a power to it in the sense that from the, I was going to say from the time they get up, but it's more than that. How they sleep. There are rules. <laughs> what side they sleep on. I believe it's, uh, the, I don't sleep this way. I, I, I lie on my back and my wife tells me I snore, but they, they lie on their, on their right side with their arm in a certain position. It's, there are rules about how they must sleep. They're all tied in to keep them from moving. So they kind of wrap really? themselves with the futon, yeah, to keep wow. themselves from moving. They're, they're like a big, uh, what do you call it, uh, sausage wiener there. We're all wrapped in. <laughs> and then they, when they go to the toilet, uh, they have yeah. a certain bows and chants they must do. They must do certain procedures inside the most intimate moment there. And there are things uh, uh, that make that a ritual. So their life is just morning to night, ritual, ritual, ritual. One thing that I can see about rituals, not the sleeping in the toilet rituals, but I'm thinking, you know, the let's call it a service when they're performing their activities in a monastery, is that the ritual um, is a sort of a thread of continuity. And, and we talked recently about the different Zen ancestors and how Zen has been sort of passed down from one person to another. And ritual kind of goes along with that continuity, doesn't it? Well, there's a morning service at AHG that they say has been performed every morning uh, without exception for, uh, I believe, about 800 years since Dogen's time. And uh, that's through the war, through fires, through pestilence, whatever was happening, they did this ritual. And um, I, had the, I was able to participate in it one, one time as a visiter. And they kind of said, turn left, 
turn right like that, you know, <laughs> so I didn't completely embarrass myself, but it was, it was hard because uh, you, you really got to, you know, keep up with the, the other 50 monks there. And, well, it's a form uh, of choreography it when it, when you have a whole group like that. Yeah. But I'm just thinking no, of the smaller dance. rituals of, let's say you bow before you sit Zazen, that sort of right. ritual represents a continuity over centuries. Um, and, and that seems to me like almost an, an, a ritual without a great deal of weight. So personally, I'm the guy who really doesn't like all the rituals, the chanting and the the incense and the turning right, right. turning left and all. Um, I have a lot of trouble accepting that as being something that goes with a practice that to me is relatively stripped down, that of Zazen. Um, other people, as you said, lots of people love the rituals because in some way, I guess it just keeps them keeps them flowing, right? Look, I'm, I'm a purist. The only thing you need is Zazen, which we're going to talk about before we leave today. Zazen is a ritual too, but okay. the only thing you need is Zazen. But if you add some things, a stick of incense, a candle, uh, a certain chant before you sit, a certain way to ring the bell, it creates an atmosphere of, I don't want to say a sacred space, but it reminds you that there's something about this moment that's going to be different from the rest of your life. You need to slow down, focus, put your the rest of your day aside for a time. The incense, the candle, the statue, they're all just reminders. I don't think when I bow to the statue on the altar, it's a work of art. It's a piece of glass or a piece of clay. It's But somebody said, well, why are you bowing to a piece of clay? And I said, look, do you have a picture of your mother on the bookcase in your house and he said yeah i have a picture of my mom could you okay put it in the uh bird cage no i'm not gonna do that that's my mother i said that's not your mother it's a piece <laughs> of paper that's not your mother it, well it reminds me of my mom it means my mom i said well that is all the buddhist statue is it reminds us of somebody who has something important to say so bowing ringing the bell these are things that serve to frame that moment of zazen Right. To indicate that this is when it starts, right? Right. Right. If you want to do that, yes. It's a, a good way. We we bow to the cushion. It's just a, a greeting. Even if no one else is there, we believe the whole world is there. So we bow, even if we're all alone. And we may uh, chant certain things. It, we, we In our Zazenkai, we recite the Heart Sutra uh, before our Zazenkai. But there's a certain way we do it. Uh, do you know the Heart Sutra? Not by heart. I, I know it by heart, but I'm not going to bore you with it right now. <laughs> I know it by heart in Japanese and English. And uh, it's also chanted in Tibetan. It's chanted in Vietnamese. It's chanted throughout uh, much of Northern Asia uh, in many, it's all this different sects. It's not just the Zen thing, but it's a philosophical statement about how the mind creates a divided vision of the world and how we can reverse that. It's basically about emptiness, okay? So we study the Heart Sutra, but then you put the study down and you just intone it, you sing it, and you may move as you're singing. And suddenly you're not just studying about emptiness, your body is empty. Your body is the flowing of the world. Your very toes, 
your very voice is the sound and the movement that is this whole world. Somehow, how am I saying? You throw yourself in the ocean and you become the ocean like that. So that's why we chant the Heart Sutra. You don't just chant it to, to, to make the noise. You don't just chant it because it says something. You chant it to become what the Heart Sutra is about. Okay, so you said that Zazen itself is a ritual. Yeah. Well, in the meaning of that, people think I'm, I'm meditating in order to relax or I'm meditating in order to realize something like yeah. uh, enlightenment or emptiness. Okay, I just explained how chanting the Heart Sutra makes you emptiness. You throw yourself into it with the body and the mind, right? The, you, you drop yourself into the movement and the sound, and you find this flowing of the universe, right? Zazen is the same. We put the body in a certain position. It's not moving, but we let the whole world flow through us nonetheless. The mind is also of a a certain clarity so it is a kind of dance of stillness it is its own ritual and it does have as much symbolic value as anything uh, i said that the buddha statue is a piece of glass that represents your mother or not your mother i mean the buddha right <laughs> well zazen when we take the pose we become the statue we become the buddha we're supposed to actually have a sense that we are embodying all the Buddhas and ancestors right there. So some of the power of Zazen is that it is a kind of sacred doing. But it's very Japanese and Chinese, all this, right? Before we end today, because I got to get back to my next ritual, uh, I want to mention that some people object that these things are so Japanese or so Chinese. Why are we American or French people doing Chinese and Japanese things? And I say, first off, we're a Japanese or Chinese tradition. And as you said, that's part of the club. But there's a reason. Even though something's Japanese or Chinese, that doesn't mean it's bad. You don't have to, you know, do everything, you know, start eating with chopsticks if you don't want to. But a lot of the Japanese traditions are just beautiful. So we keep them as Japanese just to recognize our roots and how beautiful. Uh, it doesn't matter where it comes from. It's a good point. There, there are certain ascetic values in Japanese traditions that aren't really the same in all other traditions. Um, I think there's a risk of trying to pretend you're being too Japanese. Um, so there's an important balance there, isn't there? Exactly. You don't need the shoji screen, you know, the paper screens on the wall yeah. to do real Zen. But uh, the way they do the eating ritual is very Japanese and it's, it's a keeper. It's, it's something I encourage people to practice because it's a, a great ritual. I don't care where it came from that was invented in Japan. Okay, Roshi, my ritual question that I ask you at the end of every episode, where do we go from here? Well, I have to go climb the mountain and re ring the big gun now. No, I'm, I'm going to bed. I'll <laughs> see you is later. It your turn this week? It, it's, my, it's my turn. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating. Tell your friends. You can check out past episodes at our website, zen-of-everything.com. And if you want Jundo to answer your questions, send us an email at podcast at zen-of-everything.com. Thanks for listening.